Each moment lived with mindfulness is a moment lived authentically. Today happens to be one of the Well, it's a, it's a sutta exploration weeks, so, and it happens to be uh, one of my favorite suttas. I know I've said it with many suttas prior, but this one in particular, because of the simplicity and the wealth of meaning that come together. It is a sutta that brought me here in my life because 30 years ago or so, I was uh, very much uh, into Zen Buddhism because of its simplicity and being so sharp, so real, so authentic. Until I came across this sutta, which is the Bahiya Sutta from the Udana. In English, we can call it the inspired utterances of Lord Buddha. And it was very much Zen for me. And I was like, wait a minute. This is the Pali Canon. As far back as we can go, it's, it's, if there's any authentic teachings, it's got to be here. But I thought such novel ideas came around five, six, seven hundred, a thousand years after. But here it was. Here it is. So before we begin, I'd like to um, give you um, a background story, which I find to be very helpful in understanding, in really absorbing a sutta, the discourses. And as mentioned prior, please, Put your intellect on the shelf. Allow your hearts to open. Take in, take in the teachings that are found in, within these suttas.
these authentic suttas of Lord Buddha's teachings have the power to transform one's life because of the amount of truth they encapsulate within them. They're keys that can help a person break through the walls of ignorance as they have done from the first moment they were spoken almost 2,600 years ago. And multitudes upon multitudes of beings, both human and non-human, attained one or more stages of awakening, including arahantship, just from the mere fact that they were listening with their hearts. During the time of Dasabala Kassapa Buddha, uh, actually his dispensation, during the time where his teachings were still available, I believe he was not at that time, so, but his teachings were still around. And a group of seven bhikkhus came together and they said, well, the dispensation of the Buddha Kassapa is slowly, slowly disappearing. So before it completely gets obliterated, let us make a valiant effort and dedicate ourselves to the practice. And they decided to go up on this hill, um, a mountain, uh, basically it was a major, huge boulder. But the only way to get to it was through a ladder. So they climb up this ladder, so they're on top of this cliff. And the elder bhikkhu among them turns to them and says, friends, If you don't have the heart, please, I advise you to go back down and stay there because I'm going to drop the ladder, which connects us to everything else, which connects us to the villages, because once the ladder is gone, we're stuck here. There's no way of coming down unless you jump and you'll die. And all seven of them strongly affirm that they want to stay there until they attain arahanship or until they taste the Dhamma, any of the stages of awakening. And once the elder bhikkhu realizes that they mean business, he drops the ladder and they sit with so much aditana, so much energy, so much dedication putting everything that they had learned into practice. This was it for them because they only had 
a limited amount of water because they couldn't have food with them. And now they could not go back to the villages for their pindapada, for their alms rounds. That was it. So their time was running out. And they knew this. And within, I believe, the fifth day, the elder among them attains arahanship. And as an arahant, uh, there's two kinds of arahants, roughly speaking. One that upon awaking, uh, awakening, uh, they uh, do not have any added um, uh, psychic powers. And then there's the other kind of arahant that does these powers come to them, having worked on them, having had done basically their paramis in the past. So this arahant, now one of the seven, becomes compassionate and wants to go and, and, and get food for them. So he flies, he goes and gets food for them. And he comes and, and delivers to them and says, friends, I have brought food. And they stop and then, uh, you know, and they look at him and they said, friend, uh, did we have an agreement that once a person, one of us attains arahanship, can go and bring food and we can actually sustain ourselves indefinitely, basically, until we wake up? And he says, no. So he says, we're not going to touch that food. That's not why we're here. So their resolve is that strong. So on the seventh day, two days later, one more person, another bhikkhu, this time attains to the anagamin stage, which is a non-returner. And now we have the five left. And they struggle and struggle, but their food, their water runs out and eventually all of them die. Having done their best. Now, the Arahant, obviously, at the moment of death, he goes into Parinibbana. The second one, who attained Anagami, was born in the Suddhavasa pure abodes. That's where Anagamins are reborn. There's five realms, but this is only a realm that um, these five are realms where only Anagamins can be reborn, no one else. Because from these realms, they attain arahantship, either at landing, during, or um, uh, when their time runs out at the pure abode. Basically, they will never fall back from that realm, those realms. So, one, uh, the, this anagaming uh, bhikkhu, who is now a Brahma, God, always scours the universe to look for his five companions who have yet to attain. 
So he took it upon himself to actually guide them when the need was there. Meanwhile, all five of them had been reborn in different realms of gods, but not in the pure abode. So eventually, one after the other, they start showing up in different uh, time periods. But because of their merits, they um, are reborn at the time of Lord Buddha. So, um, one of the five happens to be this young little boy who attained arahantship at the age of seven. Seven. His name was Dabba. Dabba is, um, and we're going to see because Bahia ends up being one of this five, by the way, uh, on whom, uh, about whom the sutta is uh, going to be covered today. So Dabba was, uh, his mother was having a very difficult labor with him. She was pregnant with him, but during her ordeal, she dies without the baby, the fetus coming out. So his, her family thinks uh, that, oh, she died. So they're very distraught and heartbroken. And then they say, oh, the baby died with her as well. So they take her to the cremation uh, and they pile up this huge, substantial amount of wood to burn her with. And as she is being burned, at that moment, the fetus comes out and everyone jumps in and saves the baby. And that was Dabba, who in about seven, and Dabba means substantial, you know, pile of wood, substantial wood. That's what Dabba means. And At the age of seven, as Lord Buddha was going through the land of the Mallas for Pindapada, for his arms round, the seven-year-old Dabba turns to his grandmother, who was now his caretaker, and says, Grandma, I, I want to become one of them. I want to be in robes. I want to be like them. The grandma looks at him, looks at the Lord Buddha, and then takes him to Lord Buddha and asks if he could become a novice. And Lord Buddha looks at him, sees the potential, and calls over one of the bhikkhus and says, shave his head, make him a novice, give him the ordination. And as his curly hair were being shaved off, the first strike of the razor Dabba becomes, well, he tastes the fruition of Sotapanna. With the second strike of the razor, he attains Sakadagami fruition, which is once returned. With the third strike, as his curly hair were coming off, he becomes Nanagami, non-returner, fruition stage. And the commentaries say that before his hair was completely shaved off, as his preceptor was naming the Kamatanas, or we say uh, Kesa Loma, head hair, body hair, 
nails, teeth, and skin. By the time he got to the skin, mentioning of looking at the skin, basically, you use them as a bhikkhu, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an ordained individual, uh, these phenomena, and they turn into these objects of meditation. And as Dabba was now pondering the skin portion of the Kamatanas, he becomes an arahant at seven years old. So this was one of them, one of the five. The other one was uh, Venerable Sabhya, and um, he, um, they, if you recall the Brahma God, the, their elder um, from the Suddhavasa, he appears in front of Venerable Sabhya and puts about 20 riddles for him to figure out. These 20 riddles take him to eventually to the Lord Buddha and who answers them and then he becomes a bhikkhu there and then through his uh, arduous practice he becomes an arahant as well. And then we have the um, king. There was another one um, who had been reborn in uh, the royal family in the Taxila region Taxila was the first, uh, where we have the first Buddhist university uh, in modern day um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and that area. So he had been born as in the royal family, who later on became King Pukusati. King Pukusati um, had been very close friends with King Bimbisara, who was a very close student of Lord Buddha from the earlier days. Later on, King Bimbisara's own son actually commits patricide. He, he kills his father, King Bimbisara, who happened to be a Sotapanna. He had seen the Dhammai. So in their communications, in their correspondences, one day King Bimbisara, because he's so full of faith in the Dhamma and the Buddha, he mentions the Dhamma in his correspondences to King Pukusati, who immediately drops everything and goes into meditation, and he attains the first jhana. Having tasted it, he calls over his ministers and gives away his powers. He's, he's, you know, he passes it on to his son, and, and he leaves, and he puts on the robes, and he goes forth. And then he becomes a monk. And the Buddha knows this, and he goes to this potter's shed, a place where King Pukusati had been on his journey to go and see Lord Buddha. And we have this uh, beautiful encounter between both of them in the Datu Vibhanga Sutta. And at the end of the Sutta, we see how King Pukusati, who's, who's a venerable now, he becomes an anagami himself. And then uh, as he goes around taking, you know, uh, having to get certain items, he um, dies. He's attacked by uh, a wild animal. So, and then we get to Bahia. Bahia. Bahia had been reborn as in a family of merchants in the area called Bahia, in fact. And he was involved in um, 
in business, import, export, international business. So he would be on ships a lot of times. So one day, as he is going uh, to uh, what modern day is the island of Sumatra in Indonesia, his ship gets into this huge thunderstorm and he is, the whole ship basically um, is in shambles and everyone dies except for him. So he becomes a castaway and, 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 and he gets beached onto this area, which is right above what we have today as the city of Mumbai in India, which is on the western side of India. And because he's all, you know, he's, he loses everything, including his clothing. So he looks around and he finds these pieces of driftwood, dry driftwood, and he attaches them together with some vine and he puts them around himself as like a sarong, as a makeshift a skirt, if you will, to protect himself and to, um, to look decent. Now, in the morning, people come around and they look at him and they start thinking that he must be a holy man. And they say, oh, this is a holy man. This is a yogi. He must be an arahant because he's living on the beach by himself. That's how they presume. That's how gullible people are sometimes. We have expectations, presumptions from appearances, especially when it comes to spiritual or religious teachers. We don't like to test. We don't like to see look at their behavior, whether they match their words. So um, they come and start offering him veneration and food, all the four requisites, uh, robes, food, shelter, including medicine, if he needed it. Now he looks at the clothing, at the robes, and he says, if I put these robes on, they're going to start thinking that I'm just a normal person. So at least these driftwood that I have around my waist, they're giving me a certain type of prestige. They're respecting me. They think I'm an Arahant. And he's getting every day the supplement of food and many, many worshipers. So as he's thinking to himself like this one night, and he starts thinking, oh, I must be an Arahant. At that moment that Brahma, God, one of his previous companions, the one who became the Anagami on that clifftop, realizes with his mind what Bahia was thinking. And he says, ah, he's conceited and he has false pride. So he appears in front of him and he says, Bahia, not only are you not an Arahant, you're not even close to be on the path of Arahantship. And at that moment, Bahia says, uh, because the Brahma appears in full glory with, with the radiance in front of him. Some of the commentaries say that it was his mother from a previous life, but uh, that's not the uh, accurate description because it's the uh, one of his companions, meaning one of the companions, the other bhikkhus from uh, 
to Lord uh, Kassapa, Buddha's time, his dispensation. Uh, so that's the background of Bahia. And then when when uh, the Brahma God asks him, uh, says these things, he says, Bahia has the humility, at least to turn and say, well, are there Arahants now in the world today? And the Brahma God says, yes. North of here, he says, in the land of Savati, in a place called Jeta's Grove, there is an Arahant, a perfectly awakened Buddha right now, who is teaching. He's an Arahant, and he's teaching the way to Arahantship. The moment the Brahma God disappears, Bahia starts running in that direction and it was about it is about 120 yojanas um they say um or 1200 leagues so basically it's close to a thousand uh miles a distance which he runs and they say that he only took uh, a short rest uh at night whenever he reached his destination uh, but he was able to reach it because of his enormous amount of merits and paramis that he had, because he didn't stop for food, and that's not natural. But his faith and aditana were so strong that he was able to uh, make the journey, which we'll discover during the sutta. So, and then we have the the final um, bhikkhu. Uh, that we um, or person from the original group of seven and that is kumara kasapa who uh, was also a bhikkhu at the time of buddha he was one of his uh, bhikkhus his sangha members but his students and the, again the brahma god uh, the original anagami from the group appears in front of him and he gives him a riddle again this time a 15 point riddle and that is what we see in the vamika sutta which is the anthill simile which i think we need to cover at one point it's a beautiful sutta as well so i wanted to uh, give you um, a, a brief uh, background um, um, and um, so let's go to the sutta itself So this sutta is from the Udana. It's uh, or, uh, the main Nikaya is the Kuddaka Nikaya or the minor collection of discourses. It's in the section called Bodhi Vagga or uh, the section on awakening. And this is a translation I did um, recently for our study of the sutta. Here we go. Bahya Sutta. I have personally heard this. On one occasion, the Blessed One was staying at Anata Pindika's monastery at Jato's Grove in Savati. It was during that time that Bahia of the bark cloth, Daruchirya or bark cloth, is the one that he had constructed for himself. That's how he came to be known, Daruchirya. 
was living in Supparaka by the seashore, the area right above Mumbai, modern day. There he found himself being revered, respected, venerated, worshipped, and given homage. As he received the four requisites of robes, alms food, lodgings, and medicinal requisites whenever he became sick. Then, while he was alone and in seclusion, he began reflecting to himself. There are beings living in this world who are arahants, or who have entered onto the path of arahantship. Now, I think it is fair to say that I should also be counted as one of them, a real arahant. Then, a deva who had once been a companion in the holy life of Bahia of the Bar Cloth, becoming compassionate towards him and desiring his welfare, and knowing with his own mind the thought that had arisen in Bahia's mind, appeared before him in his divine radiant glory and immediately said this to him you bahia are neither an arahant nor have you entered onto the path to becoming an arahant you are clueless when it comes to becoming an arahant nor are you engaged in the types of practices that could get you to become an arahant then please tell me who and where in this world with its devas and humans are the true arahants or have entered onto the path to arahantship. Bahia, there is a city in the northern country named Savati. It is there where the blessed one, the arahant, the perfectly self-awakened one, is living now in Jeta's Grove. It is he who is truly an Arahant, and he teaches the Dhamma that inevitably and directly leads to Arahantship. Now this term here, the perfectly self-awakened one, in Pali the term is Samma Sambuddho or Samma Sambuddha uh, as compared with Paticca, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Pacheka Buddha. Uh, Pacheka Buddha is also a Buddha. And he's also one who has attained uh, through his own effort. He's also self-awakened. But usually when we see the term Sammasambuddha, we also see in, in the mention of this Deva that he teaches, we know that we're talking about a genuine Buddha in the sense that he could teach. A Pacheka Buddha does not, because if Bahia were to be told about a Pacheka Buddha, it would not be that useful. And that is why we always um, venerate the Sammasam Buddhas and our uh, current dispensation of Lord Buddha's Buddha Gautama is one such example that allows us to attain arahantship, as it will in the case of Bahia. So that is what facilitates 
the dispensation. Otherwise, a Pacheka Buddha could appear even at the time period where there is no dispensation. It will not leave that big of a mark because they are, in essence, useless when it comes to making the Four Noble Truths uh, appear or discover. It's only in the case of a Sammasambuddha that that uh, does take place. Um, a fine, you know, a, a distinction there needed to be made. Then Vahiya, having just been deeply motivated by this Deva, left Suparaka right then and there and headed straight to Savati. Only resting to sleep wherever he stopped for the night. Thus, without losing his energy, he went all the way to where the Blessed One was staying at Anathapindika's monastery in Jeta's Grove at Savati. Once there, he saw how in the early morning hours, a large number of bhikkhus were doing walking meditation in the open air. We can just imagine the scene. And it's a, it's a place in India where the two times that I was there, it gets to have this lovely mist early in the morning before the sun rises. And uh, you have monkeys running around and just imagine, it was a vast complex. And these bhikkhus who were walking doing their chankama, their walking meditation, while other groups of bhikkhus had gone to the village uh, for their pindapada. It must have been such a sight. Now, remember, uh, Bahia was running nonstop, I mean, except for his, um, those breaks in, in where he actually uh, took some rest, slept a little bit. But he was running, he was not stopping from one point to the next. So he was very restless. But that must have actually been one sight that he was shocked by, one can assume. A wonderful sight. And by going straight to them, he said, Venerable sirs, please. Tell me where the Blessed One, the Arahant, the perfectly self-awakened one, self one, is to be found. We want to see the Blessed One, the Arahant, the perfectly self-awakened one. There's an urgency, <laughs> if ever, as you know, this, it's, it's all in every single word. And, and these don't do it justice uh, by any means, of course. And the other bhikkhus respond to him. The Blessed One has gone into town for his alms round. So basically, now is not the time. That's what they're saying. So he's, you're going to have to wait. But he's not going to have that um, as an option. And he just takes off. He's not going to sit there and say, oh, okay, at least I'm here. I'm at the monastery, Anathapindika's monastery. Sooner or later, the Lord Buddha is going to come, so I'll have my, my opportunity with him. 
to engage in a conversation Q and A type. So I can just take it, you know, I can actually sit down and rest, drink some water. But that was not the case. When we talk about Sangvega or that sense of urgency that is absolutely necessary for each of us, it's, it's not just for bhikkhus or bhikkhunis or nuns. That urgency is what is needed for us to bring, drag that mindfulness back into the breath, back into our awareness of whether there's metta in the heart. Am I watching my thoughts? Am I observing the perceptions as they arise, as they're sustained, as they disappear? Or am I being sucked into the whole story of, oh, this is my feeling? Instead of watching the feeling as it arises, instigated, triggered by a sight, a smell, a memory, etc. And instead just to see it as it, poof, arises, dwells for a while, maybe it's generated from the body, from sitting too, lo uh, too long, for example, the body starts aching. So the sensations come in and we feel that unpleasant feeling, but it arose at one point. So it's going to sustain itself. But am I engaged? Do I have a relationship with this feeling as this is my feeling? Or it's a feeling that arose. It's the truth of the moment. It's the Dhamma of the moment. And if it is like everything else, conditioned, as it arose, so it will vanish. So, is there such a mindfulness present or not? That requires the presence of Sangvega, that sense of urgency throughout. Hence, we need to always, always do our best to bring mindfulness in, mindfulness in, mindfulness in. So that requires tremendous amount of determination to make sure it's present. The ingredient of Samvega, the urgency is there in every moment lived. Then Bahia immediately left Jeta's Grove, immediately. Doesn't have time to lose immediately left Jada's grove and entered Savati, frantically looking for the Blessed One, when he finally found him. So you can imagine at this point, almost a thousand miles this man had run in his driftwood around his waist. And here he is. <sighs> heaving almost, panting almost. And then he stops and he observes. How could you not? He, in witnessing the great teacher go for alms, he saw him serenely contented, inspiring cool tranquility, majestic in his demeanor exuding confidence, calming 
with his senses restrained and at peace, his mind at peace, having attained the utmost equanimity and poise, tamed, guarded, a true Naga indeed. Naga is a term that they use, obviously, um, um, for uh, elephants, and sometimes for um, huge snakes, um, and they're also um, non-human beings, very powerful. But it's also a term that Lord Buddha um, attributed to Arahants also, to venerate the Nagas, the non-human powerful beings, um, um, as an accolade in a sense. So a true Naga, or like a royal elephant, the way it moves, calculatingly almost, serene. Approaching the Blessed One with trepidation, Bahia finally reached him as he threw himself to the ground with his head at the Blessed One's feet and exclaimed, Teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me the Dhamma, O Sugata. Sugata means uh, well gone. O Sugata, O well gone. Gone from this shore to the other beyond suffering. So he says, teach me the Dhamma so that it will be for my long lasting benefit and peace. Now we also see there the presence of sadha or faith. The other thing needs to be mentioned about the presence of Sangvega. Sangvega or the sense of urgency merged with determination or aditana cannot happen if there is not enough sufficient amount of faith we need that faith at the very least in the awakening of of, of the buddha and that we also have the potential remember it all happened like the night prior or, or two nights prior when that deva or the brahma appeared in in uh, in front of bahia that was enough to generate all the merits that he had worked on in previous lifetimes he recognized something this was it and he was not an arahant yet all that sense of despair on that clifftop from eons earlier came up welling up and we see that in him beseeching Lord Buddha to teach him. When this was said, the Blessed One replied, This is not the time, Bahia. We have now entered the town for alms. When I heard this, when I read this rather, years ago, almost 30 years ago, um, I was like, wow, you know, the man came all this way, come on. Uh, give him something, in a sense. And the Buddha had a way of, of if he didn't want to say something, he, he, you know, he would ask, uh, or he would say no, depending on the context, of course. So this number three is very crucial, three times being asked. Um, so here, 
I thought he was when originally when I was when I came across the sutta I thought that the Buddha was just like trying to see if he really wants to this Bahia wants to learn but that's not necessarily the case if we have any understanding of the suttas and how the Lord Buddha taught he would always look at the capacity of the mind of this person the, their potential and being a Buddha, he had clear access to Bahia's mind and common sense also would tell us looking at Bahia's, uh, uh, you know, situation, how he looks, that he's frazzled, he's, he's all over the place, uh, you know, he's frantic. The mind basically is turbulent, not a good place for the Dhamma to appear. So by Lord Buddha taking his time and making Bahia wait, in a sense, he's not saying absolutely no. Now is not the time, he's saying. And the Buddha never lied. He never spoke anything that was false. Here is another example. And a second time, Bahia said to the Blessed One, But, Lord, it is so hard to know for sure what dangers may lie ahead for the Blessed One's own life, or what dangers there may be for mine. Teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me the Dhamma, O Sugata, so that it will be for my long-lasting benefit and peace. He's in turmoil. He's in dukkha. He's suffering. The mind, meanwhile, is slowly, slowly starting to settle. And a second time, the Blessed One says to him, This is not the time, Bahia. We have now entered the town for alms. So he had the bowl in hand, and he was going from house to house. And there was also a row of other bhikkhus behind Lord Bhattha, of course. So Bahya is there on the ground beseeching Lord Buddha to receive some teachings. And a third time Bahya said to the Blessed One, But it is so hard to know for sure what dangers may lie ahead for the Blessed One's own life, Lord, or what dangers there may be for mine. Teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One. Teach me the Dhamma, O Sugata, so that it will be for my long-lasting benefit and peace. Here we see Lord Buddha seeing that it is opportune, it is the perfect time because Bahia's mind has now become collected. Then Bahia, you must train yourself thus. When seeing something, there will just be the seeing. When hearing something, there will only be the hearing. When feeling something, there will just be the feeling. When knowing something, there will only be the knowing. So it's not 
the thought, the memory, oh yes, being taken for a ride with the thought, the memory, the perception, the concept. Or in the case of the feeling, whatever type of feeling, whatever type of sense awareness it might be, it's just a feeling, period. It's not my feeling, it's something that arose. So your awareness is not colored by that feeling or by that thing that you just heard, the sound or the sight. You're not being taken for a ride. The thing that you saw has left the scene in a sense, yet the mind is still dwelling on it, concocting new images. That's what sankharas are, concoctions, mental concoctions. Constantly building and building over what? Something that happened in the past, which has nothing to do with us. It just happened because of certain conditions that no longer are there, but we are perpetuating it. So here the Buddha is going straight to the jugular. When knowing something, Bahya says, there will just be the knowing. Know that the memory is there, but it is only a memory. And as it arises, it's there, it will disappear. Know that too. Don't hold on to that memory of that thought. Same with sensing or feeling something. The Buddha continues, this is how you must train yourself, Bahia. And when, Bahia, there will only be the seeing when you are seeing something, when there will only be the hearing when you hear something, when there will only be the feeling when you feel something, when there will only be the knowing or cognizing when you know or cognize something. Then, Bahia, there will no longer be any identification with anything. Now we live in the world in a time period where if you don't have some form of an identity, you're missing out. There's something wrong with you. If you don't have some sense of identification that you hold so dear to yourself, and usually it means having several identities. I'm a this, I'm of this gender, I have this likes, I have this, this, the, these dislikes. I'm a citizen of this country, I'm, I belong to this ethnic group, I belong to these people, this political party, etc., etc., and ad infinitum. This is going contrary to the Dhamma, 180, 180 degrees opposite of what the Dhamma, what Lord Buddha is teaching, and teaching so clearly here. not identifying with anything because anything means it has the characteristics of existence of anicca impermanence not being constant unreliable unsafe 
dukkha, suffering, causing disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And not having an individuality around it, a substantiality that we like to attribute to it. Lord Buddha continues. And when there is no identification with anything, then there will no longer be a you in reference to it. When there is no longer any you in reference to any object, then there will no longer be a you to be found here, there, or anywhere in between. This in itself, Bahia, is the end of all suffering. If this is not the Dhamma in a nutshell, I don't know what is. It's so beautiful. When I read this, I thought, wow! Zen before Zen. <laughs> It's there. This is coming from the Udana. This was there in the first council. This was not an added book of the Kuddhaka Nikayas. This is one of the original books within the Kuddhaka or the minor collection of discourses. This was chanted by Venerable Ananda. And it's there, it's so simple. Let's continue. Meanwhile, as he carefully listened to this brief explanation of the Dhamma given by the Blessed One, suddenly the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth was liberated from the contaminants, right then and there, through non-grasping. The contaminants are the asavas, and that is how usually the attainment of uh, arahantship, fruition, is described in brief when we read uh, that a person has, uh, ha well, has the mind now liberated from the asavas, which are three, uh, usually they're termed in, in threes, so um, kamasava, or the sense pleasures, um, um, contaminant, there are another, uh, other translators have used terms like influx, outflux. Uh, I like to call it also, call them uh, like leakage, leakage that are ongoing so long as there hasn't been the attainment of full awakening. So we have kamasava, bhavasava. Bhavasava is the thing that leads one from life to life. It's the becoming part. No, okay, this isn't working for me. Um, I'm looking forward for the next, next birth, next uh, moment, next experience. Um, it's almost like, you know, doing a, a redo. Uh, I'll, I'll have a, you know, a, I'll do this again. I'll, that desire, which is very, very... Um, um, pervasive in 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 the, in the mind of um, of us, basically mind that has not been awakened. 
And then the third one is the avijasava, which is the ignorance. And that is also the last uh, sangyojana, the last fetter, ignorance um, out of 10, uh, that once it's gone, the arahant would know that they have uh, attained um, the pinnacle of the holy life, as we see in the suttas. So, and having been instruct, uh, been instructed, Bahya of the bark cloth, with this brief explanation on the Dhamma, the Blessed One continued on his alms round. Having instructed Bahya of the bark cloth with his brief explanation on the Dhamma, the Blessed One continued on his alms round. Not long after the Blessed One had left, Bahya was attacked and killed by a cow that was looking after its young calf. In India, to this day, you walk around and there are cows walking around all over. Um, at one point I heard that there are more cows than cars in India, so I'm not sure if that's, if that's a true statement, but they're everywhere. And uh, Bahya, like earlier I mentioned about Pukkusati, who attained Anagami, he was also killed by a cow. Um, and the commentaries say that there's, there, um, they shared a history. And there was another individual, I believe it was um, Supa Buddha, uh, an individual who uh, also saw with the Dhamma eye, and then he had to be, uh, well, not had to be, but he also died in a similar fashion because they joined a, uh, they had committed a, uh, an action in the past, an unwholesome action, which now they were um, um, facing the consequences of. So here Bahia was, meanwhile Bahia, because he was in such a, uh, you know, attire that is not suitable for a bhikkhu because now he's an arahant. So you have to become a bhikkhu. <laughs> there's no other, there's no ifs and buts about it. You, you can't walk around like a layperson and say, yeah, okay, business as usual. Now I'll just have a clearer mind as a layman. No, that's, we don't see an iota of evidence in, throughout the suttas anywhere that says that that's the case. So he was looking to go ahead and he was going to go around the Savat, he, he was doing it, looking for a bowl and the very basic requisites um, and robes, a set of robes, three robes. So as he was going around, that's when the cow, the mother cow kills him, you know, just gouges him with, with the horns and he dies on the spot. Later, when the Blessed One, having gone for alms in Savati and eaten his meal, on returning from his alms round with a large number of bhikkhus, saw that Bahia had died. At this, the Blessed One instructed the monks, bhikkhus, take Bahia's body and place it on a litter and carry it away. Cremate it and build him a stupa. Your companion in the holy life has died. So meanwhile, the bhikkhus are like companion in the holy life. Okay, so 
they're guessing probably that Lord Buddha gave him the ordination and he was going to get the requisites. So in the way, died. That's, you know, okay. And Lord Buddha told him, gave him a directive. So, okay, so we're, they put him on um, like a stretcher and then a gurney and then they um, went and cremated him and built a stupa around the relics, the bones. So as you say, Lord, they said uh, to the Blessed One and the bhikkhus, placed Bahia's body on a litter and by carrying it away, cremated it and then built him a stupa and then went back to the Blessed One. In approaching the Blessed One, the bhikkhus paid homage to him and then sat to one side as they reported to the Blessed One. Bahia's body has been cremated, Lord, and a stupa has been erected for him. What is his destination, Bhante? Where is he now reborn? This tells us that they thought, the bhikkhus thought, that he had just died and he must have died and gone to uh, the deva realms because he was a companion in the holy life, etc., etc. And Lord Buddha says, bhikkhus, Bahia of the bark cloth was wise. He practiced in accordance with the Dhamma, and he did not pester me with issues related to the Dhamma by asking too many questions. Bahia of the bark cloth, bhikkhus, attained final Nibbana. He's untraceable. <laughs> Mara cannot find him anymore. He's out of samsara. That's what the final Nibbana means, Parinibbana. It occurs to a person who has been an arahant, who had reached that up until that moment of death. So um, here is important because sometimes we give too much credence to our questions, to our thoughts, to our thinking, and our comprehension of the Dhamma. Now, we need to have an understanding, we need to be knowledgeable of the Dhamma, but as it says in the Dhammapada, Lord Buddha says how, even if you know a single verse, very short, a word of the Dhamma, and you live with the truth of that, authentically, that's far more valuable than knowing the whole Nikayas, the whole Tripitaka. So sometimes, especially in the West, uh, there's a lot of us who think that, okay, let me approach this cognitively with these concepts, with these understandings. So we become top heavy with our intellect and we can't help it. That's how we've been educated. That's the culture. But that also makes us forget the importance of having the urgency to know, just like a child who's hungry, who's so present, asking for milk. Try to get the attention of the child, like by giving him something. If, if the child is hungry, the child is going to make you know it's hungry. That deliberate determination needs to be there. At that point, who cares about this concept, that concept? 
So long as we have a, a deep, deep understanding in our heart of what needs to be done, what I need. He was thirsty. He needed, he was, it was scorching hot inside. It was a desert, arid desert in his heart. And he wanted to water it. And the promise was there because his friend, the Brahma God, told him, gave him the address. Go ahead if you want. But you're going to have to go all the way there. You're going to have to sit in front of Lord Buddha. You're going to ask. You're going to be the one who will take that teaching and do whatever you're going to do with it. So questions are important. Too many questions are not necessary. Then, to commemorate the significance of this event, the Blessed One exclaimed, and this is what makes it part of the Udana, the inspired utterances. This is this section. Where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, where the stars do not shine, nor the sun is seen, where the moon does not glow, and darkness is nowhere to be found. And when a sage, a holy person with true wisdom, realizes this for himself, then one is finally liberated from both the form and the formless, from both pleasure and pain. Sadhu. This is uh, what I uh, like to share with you today. And um, Bahia was, uh, Lord Buddha was known to give superlatives, uh, the, the, the 80 um, unique bhikkhus and the 80 unique bhikkhunis he had a category so the the wisest among the bhikkhus was known as uh, was was uh, selected by lord buddha as for example uh venerable sariputta the one uh, the highest uh, the most skilled in psychic abilities was um chosen by uh, by lord buddha to be uh venerable uh Mahamukallana. and in the in the quickest the quickest Kippa um, Binyana, uh, which is like the quickest to attain, uh, that honor was given to Bahia because indeed he was the quickest to get it. Um, only it, it took only a sentence or a verse and he got it. So that is what. Uh, Um, we have to inspire us, to encourage us, to help us push through ignorance with determination, persistence, effort, understanding, and putting it into practice. How much do we put into practice? Because we're always seeking for that perfect teaching from the Dhamma. If I can just get that formula, I know I'm looking for it. If, if I can just get that question answered, I don't know what the question is, by the way, but if I can, I'll know it when I see it type of a thing. 
The mind plays all kinds of tricks. Let's not be fooled any longer. And that is the invitation made by uh, Venerable Bahia Daruchiriya, Bahia of the Barclay from 26 centuries ago. And I will pause here and ask uh, if there's any questions, um, sharing of thoughts, comments, etc. Please come on forward and speak. Uh, I can't see hands. Thank you for your talk today, Bhante. Uh, a lot of what you said today came from the commentaries, the background material, the things that made it very helpful for us to set the scene and to understand the background of, especially the monks on the cliff, which I had never heard before. Um, and I understand that you can read the commentaries because you speak Pali um, in my explorations. It seems that there aren't that many of the commentaries translated yet into English. So I'm wondering, especially with this one in particular, there was such a long story which seemed to cover a lot of different suitors and different people. Is this one of the commentaries that's been translated to English or have you simply read the Pali? Oh, um, actually I've used uh, sources from uh, the Burmese, um, from the Burmese teachers, specifically from um, Mingun Sayadaw and also Mahasi Sayadaw who were um, the carriers of the Tipitaka, in a sense. They, they were given those honors in the Sixth Council, um, where, you know, there's, I, I don't know if you know this, but there are these very demanding exams, examinations that individuals participate in. So Venables, uh, both Mingun Sayadaw and Mahasi Sayadaw, in fact, they were, <laughs> One was the questioner, Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw was the questioner, uh, meaning they would pick a verse anywhere from the Nikayas or the Abhidhamma or the Vinaya Pitaka or the Suttas, and they would say, go ahead and answer. What comes after this? What comes prior to this? What was the context? What was the backstory? What was this sutta or this verse trying to say? So basically these, uh, yes, there were some Pali um, that I looked into, but the majority of it, fortunately for us, are um, available in English also. So you can also find them online. So you're, you're going to have to do some digging. And also through a course of um, being at the feet of, of teachers uh, over the course of my train my training and studying those also are coming into uh, when i give a dhamma talk or when i'm doing any sutta exploration so i'm trying to um, reach into all these resources to make them available uh, to you uh, but you do not need to know uh, pali um, unless you you really um, want to of course um, to understand the sources and what does this term mean really? This translator is using it this way, but does it really do it justice to the meaning, the context? In those instances, I, I really have to go back to the Pali and take it apart and then look at it also in the context, of course, and then compare the other English translations, for example, and take it in 
and see as a meditation teacher, as a meditator, whether this holds true. Putting this all together. And then finally, and, and then also think about the listener or the student of meditation today in the 21st century, whether this word that I'll be using, for example, will get the person to understand what was being mentioned here, the intention behind it. Uh, so I don't know if I'm, I'm able to uh, respond to your question uh, as adequately. Well, yes, you're responding well, but you you say things that lead to other questions. So, for example, as you're reading, I'm I'm looking at a copy of the Udana by Ananda Jyoti Bhikkhu. It's online. It has the Pali and it has the English translations, and I find it wonderful to look at. Exactly as you say, I can look at his use of effluence or something and see mm. that he actually said asava so i know that he's not talking about defilements and other things so it's, it's really useful to look at the pali even though i only have a limited understanding a small vocabulary in pali words but you referred to uh the commentaries being in english if I'm going to research that, what is it I'm going to Google? What's what am I, I? I could Google the Udana, but this doesn't have any commentaries in it, even though it has the Pali. What am I looking for when I'm looking for a commentary on this Sutta? Uh, good question. Uh, each of the Nikayas, uh, in fact, each of the books, in the case of, uh, let's say, Kuddaka Nikaya, it, it has several uh, books in it. One of them is the Dhammapada, for example. Mm -hmm. The other one is the Suttanipata. The other one is the Teragata, and the other one is Terigata, and the uh, this one here is the Udana, and the final uh, original from the original collection of Kuddakanikaya is the Itivuttaka. Um, so the Udana, each of these books basically has its own uh, um, uh, commentary. Okay. And uh, like, for example, the Dhammapada has its own commentary. And if we're going to, uh, let's say, get one of the verses, let's say, mind is the forerunner of all evil states, you know, manopubangama, where, what does that, okay, why did the Buddha say this? So the commentary comes in of the Dhammapada that gives us a, a, a better purview of, of, of background story as to what ensued, what had happened. And we know from the commentaries that it was because of the schism, the, the, the argument, the fighting that was going on in the Kosala uh, region, uh, Kosambi, I'm sorry, I'm sorry uh, between groups of monks, uh, because something had happened. Basically, a monk had gone, uh, um, um, a Dhamma master had gone visiting a Vinaya master, uh, just a visit, and then he had to use, he had to, you know, uh, use the bathroom. So he asks where the latrine is, and he goes, and, you know, there's one of the rules that, um, you know, you, you, you get the water, and after you're done, you know, answering the call of nature, you dump the bucket and of, of water over it, and then you flip it. Okay, so there's no water left. 
we don't know the the what was going on with the dhamma master's mind but apparently he he tosses the water out but there's just a little bit of water left in the bucket and it's left not up, you know turned upside down so the vinaya master's students later on go and check and see the bucket is unturned oh my that's a no-no they go and tell the Vinaya master and there's a major, major uh, issue out of that. And then the Vinaya master goes and tells and laughs at the Dhamma master having, you know, he had already left. So he's basically breaking a precept. He's gossiping, slandering. And his students now, later on the next morning, they're going to Pindapada and they meet who? While they're on their alms round, the student of the Dhamma teacher. And the young students turn and say, oh, your teacher doesn't know much Vinaya, does he? He did this. How could he be a teacher? And how do we know this? Because of the commentary. Uh, and most of the commentaries, they were written, unfortunately, we lost a big chunk of them, if not all of them, uh, except for um, in Anuradhapura, which is northern part of Sri Lanka. Uh, Venerable uh, Buddha Gosa, who later also wrote the Visuddhimagga, another commentarial work. Uh, he uh, converted those um, commentaries. So he kind of, because they, the, there was a, a fire that happened, which, which uh, where we lost most of these commentaries. So fortunately, he had made copies in a sense of these earlier texts, earlier commentaries. So they're called Attakavagga and um, uh, Tikas and, and all, you know, commentaries, sub-commentaries, things like that. But fortunately, uh, we do have um, the English translations. I know Pali Text Society, of course, they have the Pali version, but they also do sell the hard copies. Um, and you can, I believe, get them straight from them. Uh, if you want the hard copies, um, or you can also find uh, much resources on, on online. So I hope that answers or helps the question. Thank you. Yeah. And I have another one, but I'm going to wait to see if anyone else has a question first. Does anyone else have a question, comment, critique? Okay, so I'm going to move on to my next question is when I hear about the seven monks who climbed up on the cliff and allowed the ladder to be tossed away, knowing what that meant. It meant certain death for them in a relatively short amount of time. Um, my mind turns to the karma of that event and the intention of it whilst they had good intentions, the intention to uh, reach enlightenment, to reach Nirvana, or at least some stage along the path, it's a little bit of a Hail Mary pass to go from not being a stream enterer to reaching at least one of those stages. So I'm, my thoughts are, is it an unskillful intention that they made to face certain death? effectively it was suicide their actions were causing them to die in a fairly short amount of time probably not a very 
nice death and certainly not a fast death, but certainly death. Could there be, regardless of their positive intentions to do it in an attempt to attain arahantship, um, my my feeling is that there has to be some negative consequences in their actions, especially for the ones who didn't reach arahantship, they committed suicide. Um, am I wrong with that, those thoughts? Uh, wrong in the sense of the Dhamma, yes. Because we come, and, and why? Why we're even pursuing this path? Because we have to also understand our own reasonings behind things. What we, what our philosophy of life is, or philosophies, or perceptions, or directives, what, what we want to accomplish in life. Because in your question itself, I see uh, another option or options, plural. This could be, have been handled a little bit better type of a um, phrase comes to mind from that question. Uh, could they have used, uh, used their time a little bit more wisely? Give uh, themselves more time. Yeah. Or maybe they could have helped other people. Uh, while they were on their quest for awakening. All these scenarios come up, but one thing's for sure, with every single one of these variables, uh, one thing is guaranteed. There's a delay. Mm -hmm. There's a delay in their determination. This is a very uh, personal path. There's very an individual path. And if you remember, the elder monk out of the seven, along with the seven, actually, all, all seven of them had come to the realization that the sasana is dying. The dispensation is disappearing. We have to do something if we want to taste what has been taught here by Dasabala Kassapa Buddha of that era. They knew this, they saw this happen. And they wanted to do something they they knew also in their hearts they had the faith that has to be there the faith has to be there to fan the flames of determination when one loses that intensity the same thing happens today if a person goes on a fast for example fasting is not easy we need to have a clear understanding of why I'm doing this and what do I want to get out of this and what would I be losing if I quit? Because same thing could happen with any demanding program or, or a journey or a triathlete, for example, or a very difficult educational program that you're trying to complete, but every single unimaginable difficulty is being tossed at you. So you're really struggling. But something has to sustain the person. So that is a, of course, not every bhikkhu does that. Today, we don't, we don't live in um, Dasabala Kassapa Buddha's time. We're living in Gautama Buddha's dispensation time. And the Dhamma, the teachings, that is, is dying. I don't shy away from saying it. It's dying. People go and participate on retreats and, and, and do three month retreats. They put on robes or remain as lay people. 
And they can even sustain a practice for 30, 40 years. But are they truly sustaining the teachings? Are they truly sustaining the practice? Or is it haphazardly being done? Yes, there's a regiment, there's a routine, one hour here every day, so I do that. I do my donations, I do this, I do my uposhatas, fortnight practice of eight precepts or something. But what is that? Is that isn't that lip service? Is there the sense of urgency which demonstrates itself in a manifested way of living where the Dhamma and the attainment of the goal, because it, whether it's there in the, in the crosshairs, because we have more of a dedication to eating food, to paying rent, to driving to the gas station, to fill it up with gas, than we have for our practice. So yes, is there some faith to maintain that routine? Absolutely. But how much of that? It's like a drop. But a drop is not going to satiate a person who's, who's thirsty, who's dying of thirst. We need, especially when they have come to realize, and that is what we're doing here. We're trying to fan the flames to get the Sangvega, the urgency to be so strong that the person can maintain maintain the teachings in their every single breath. Can you maintain the awareness, the mindfulness of your breath on a consistent, consistent basis for one hour? How about a minute where you do not let any thoughts to come in and, and steal you, steal your awareness from that minute of being on the breath? That is the challenge. And today, I know for sure, you know, like we all, we all know this for sure, I would say, um, there's so many bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, there's so many monks and nuns. But does that mean that the dispensation is alive and well? No. There's a lot of superficiality, a lot of ulterior motives. A lot of scholasticism, and it's not even like tier one, top-rate scholasticism either. There's a lot of ego, there's a lot of this, there's a lot of that, there's little and little and little of Dhamma. So, which is a silent way of, 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 of killing the Dhamma. Here, on the other hand, on the clifftop, is how life is being breathed into the dhamma because it's experiential and it's it's to be demonstrated it's to be lived within one's own self within one's own heart and you do not need to become a bhikkhu at all and you do not need to know the the commentaries the suttas the udanas the dhamma you do not need one verse Something that moves you, touches your authenticity, your base, where it's undeniable. And then what do you do with it? That's the question. That's the challenge. How many of us do have that level of determination? When we say, you know what, for example, I'm going to fast for one day. 
or actually seven days. The first day, four or five hours in, oh, I'm getting headaches, I'm getting migraines. Oh, I'm feeling weak. Look at my hands, they're shaking. Oh, I have to eat something. And the mind comes in and says, of course you have to eat. Just like on a retreat. Ajahn Mahabua or Ajahn Man or Webu Sayadaw, for example, they would say, why are you sleeping? You've been sleeping for 30, 40 years. Can't you spare one night where you're awake, where you're just observing, you're with your meditation object? Is that how much you care for the Dhamma? Because you obviously care more about your, your sleep. Are you going to die if you don't sleep? If I don't get my sleep, it's like, a, or if I don't get my power nap. All these lies. No one's going to die if they lose a, a night's sleep. I've done it several times. Of course, many challenges show up. But then that also builds that muscle of virya, the energy, that persevering energy, which can turn into one of the seven factors of awakening if you persist long enough and you lock it in. You can tap into it anytime. And you know, once you've overcome that, challenged it enough, just like a person who's been able to do a complete one day fast, and they didn't die, they see that, oh yes, the brain remembers this. The next time they do a fast, they're like, yeah, I can, I can, yeah, I can do at least a day. But others, meanwhile, they think you're crazy. That's not possible. Just like a person who does not sleep, a wink, when sloth and torpor come as they're sitting to meditate. Meanwhile, I have to convince students to sit for an hour straight. And they're like, Bonte, you don't understand. The urgency has to be there. And if it is, the benefits are there too to greet us. So I will approach your question in that fashion. Wonderful answer. I appreciate that was a whole sermon in itself. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad it helped. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? Thank you for very much for the talk, Bhante. Um, well, it occurs to me that um, the Sutta on Bahia is somewhat like, uh, it basically reminds me of um, some other suttas like the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, like um, Mula Pariyaya Sutta, the, the first uh, sutta in uh, the Majjhima Nikaya. And for example, the Chachaka Sutta. Okay, these are very profound suttas that are not given to people who have not fulfilled the five precepts. Um, well, um, the audience are people who has fulfilled the five precepts, who has moderation in food and sleep, who has completed guarding of the six sense faculties, and probably 
in very, very advanced stages of the jhana. So the Buddha does not need to go into that. And um, these are the suttas that are given to audiences who just need that little bit more of panya to reach, uh, to reach the pinnacle. So each time when we listen to this sutta, we update our own understanding. And at the same time, we are also acutely aware of the fact that we somehow still do not fully penetrate. So um, what is your advice for us to benefit um, optimally from listening to such suttas? When, uh, when it's raining outside, there are different puddles, different sized puddles. There's different receptacles. There's empty pools, for example. There are the oceans. There's a cup, an empty cup, or a barrel like that Vinaya master's barrel outside the latrine or maybe a spoon. Each of these has the potential to get its utmost of its utmost capacity uh, full or filled up by the rain. So when we are listening or reading, or in the case of Lord Buddha teaching the Dhamma, the suttas, I try to stay away from thinking that this is for these groups versus those groups of people because that delimits, that, that, that constricts the potential. Just like it would be very similar to saying the rain that falls, it's only falling for the buckets and not for the spoon or the ocean or the lake or the empty pool or the puddle on the road. The rain is falling and whoever it has the necessary um, capacity to understand will understand as much as they're able or willing at that moment to really open up, which is why I was mentioning in the beginning of the sutta, how to open one's heart and leave the intellect on the shelf. Otherwise it will get in the way. You will not hear the Lord Buddha speaking through these words, through these teachings. Oftentimes we forget that it wasn't just human beings who were coming and listening to Lord Buddha teach. There were incalculable beings, devas, brahmas, and other beings who were there listening, many of whom were attaining, each of whom, humans also, came with different baggage or no baggage, with different abilities. Of course, Lord Buddha would have been able to see, understand, and based on the mind of one particular person, usually that's how it was, um, to my understanding, and he would look at who is ready, how many people are ready, how should I approach this? He had that ability to see who was closest to attaining. 
And many, many suttas are found where Lord Buddha gives a discourse. And during that time, so many attain different levels. But we all have to start somewhere. So some people did come with uh, um, inherent understanding, a deep, deep understanding, appreciation of the five precepts, for example, while others did not have those. The courtesans, for example, they didn't have sila, but you have students who were courtesans at one point or another. But they had heard one single phrase or one teaching of Lord Buddha and all of a sudden they, they switched. So it's not just a, a, a person who has eight or five precepts or this is only for uh, bhikkhus. Uh, for example, in the case of Anattapindika when he was on his deathbed and Venerable Sariputta and Ananda went to visit him and Venerable Sariputta gave him a teaching and at the end, Anattapindika started crying. Ananda looked at him and said, oh, he's, he must be you know, afraid of dying or something. And Anattapindika said, no, Bhante, no. I'm crying because he said, how come we have never heard this kind of Dhamma talk? And Venerable Sariputta says, well, because this is too deep uh, for uh, a layman. And he says, please, please, Bhante, from now on, I beseech you that such caliber of Dhamma talks also be taught to lay people because there's so many of us could actually, you know, attain higher levels. And he had uh, attained the Sotapanna stage, fruition. So um, we always must presume, this is my understanding, we must assume and presume because we don't know how much you, each of you have worked on your punya or your paramis in the past. Just like Bahia had, had you know, he thought that he was not aunt, for example, but he wasn't, but he did have enough punya. And given the vastness of time period that we're living in, and the limitless, countless lifetimes we've had, some of which we have practiced. And that's why we're here today and not the rest of the planet joining us. So approaching the Dhamma as uh, uh, using the analogy um, of the rain um, has helped me to give myself the benefit of a doubt or the capacity that, you know what, I might get this because Today we are speaking English. We are sitting to practice meditation. We're hearing the Dhamma, but in this life at least, it wasn't that common at one point. We had to struggle, we had to struggle, we had to sit through and overcome challenges. It's like a muscle that you need a dumbbell or a resistance weight to increase the size. So always, so Chachakka Sutta is a wonderful um, sutta, as well as the Mulapariya and, and, and 
Dhammachakka Pavatthana Sutta, and not just them, of course, um, as you know, but always allowing ourselves that extra room for growth and sometimes pushing ourselves like in the case of the example I was earlier giving on, on, on uh, not sleeping for one night or sitting for two hours instead of one. What am I going to lose? Or doing one hour of walking instead of 10 minutes. Pushing the envelope. Because you will never be the same person as you were prior to doing that. That's what these bhikkhus, these monks, the seven, and one of them being Bahia today that we focused on, were trying to demonstrate. So I don't know if I was able to answer uh, your question. Yes, thank you very much. Not being afraid and of terra incognita, the unknown territory of the Dhamma. And that's, that, that compels us to fall back into the heart, into the citta, and to trust it, to trust the virtue, to trust the little that we know, or however much we know. Just pick one authentic moment that the Dhamma has touched you. And that's enough of a North Star to guide you the rest of the way on your boat to the other shore. The boat being the earlier um, analogy of, of being born in this rare human body that facilitates this journey. Because we don't know the next life if it's going to be human or anything less. And if it's anything less, forget about it. It's not going to happen. It can only happen in case of a human or above. But now we have this. Let's not even worry about another birth. Just doing our best instead of counting that, yes, I will have my second, you know, my bonus card there. Get out of jail card because no, there is no such thing unless you have attained at least the very first level of Sotapanna stage which is what I wish upon all students, the very least. So I will stop here and uh, we'll uh, do the dedication of merit in English. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power, share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you for this opportunity to uh, touch on some uh, of the teachings of Lord Buddha and may it inspire you and encourage us to continue on this path and push forward um, 
despite the challenges that we encounter on a daily basis. And may you, at the very least, attain Sotapanna stage. Please see yourselves deserving of it, because oftentimes we self-sabotage. We think we're not deserving, we're not worthy, but we are, if we say we are. Please allow yourself the potential to awaken. That's why the Buddha taught us for 45 years. He believed in us. So let's believe in ourselves. So be well. See you next week. <laughs>